0: What would you do if God asked you to be involved in something that was way beyond you? What might keep you from doing it? What might uh, encourage you to do it? And if you did it, what would it look like? I think that in a variety of ways, God is calling us as his people to things that are beyond us. And every time that happens, we are faced with a decision of what we're going to do, how we're going to respond. And I know that we wrestle with those decisions because we aren't the first people to wrestle with those decisions. And one of the places in Scripture where we see someone wrestling with that kind of a decision is in the book of Esther. It's an interesting story. We started in chapter 3. Obviously, there's things that go on in chapters 1 and 2. But in chapter 3, we find this gentleman named Mordecai, who happens to be the uncle of Esther, though not many people know that having a disagreement, a struggle, with a man named Haman. As chapter 3 begins, it tells us that King Xerxes has made a declaration that Haman is now going to be second in command in the whole kingdom. And everyone, when they see Haman, is required to bow down in honor and really, in essence, worship of him. And Mordecai refuses to do it. The underlying idea is, for him, I'm a Jew. There's only one being I bow down to. There are some guys who go to Haman and say, hey, I don't know if you realize this or not, but there's a guy out there who's not bowing down to you. There are always people like that who want to let us know that people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And Haman is upset. And he walks out of the palace the next day and he sees everybody's bowing down to him and there's one guy standing and now he's furious. And he says, something's got to be done and I'm going to do it. And he plots his revenge, his reaction against Mordecai. But what's interesting to me is that he doesn't just decide I'm going to do something about Mordecai. He says, I'm going to do something about Mordecai's entire race. It's always interesting to me how Scripture describes people. You can, you, can, you can discover some things about the author's intent when you just pay attention to how it describes people. I'd never noticed this before, but as I was studying this passage, it, I, I saw it and I asked myself the question. The, the author describes Haman a number of times as Haman the Agathite. Agagite, And I'm thinking, I wonder what that is. I'm not familiar with that, so I looked it up and here's the thing. Nobody knows what that is. So you learn nothing from doing that. (laughs) Actually, the only theory that people have is that maybe it relates to to a king back during the time of Saul. The king of the Amalekites at the time of Saul was a man named Agag. And and Agag is the king of this, this nation of people, the Amalekites, who are distant relatives of the Jews. In fact... the the Amalekites trace their lineage back to Esau, Jacob's brother, and Jacob is the father of the Israelites. But through the years, the Amalekites have become antagonistic toward the Jews. So much so that when the fledgling Jews are coming out of Egypt, trying to stumble their way through the desert, unprovoked, the Amalekites attack them. And God says to Moses, the day is coming when I will bring justice upon them for that. And when Saul becomes king, he says to Saul, now's the time for justice. And and Saul wages war against them, and the king is Agag. And there's some sense that that Agagites are a term to describe people who are connected to the enemies of the Jews. There's one Midrash that talks about this that says... The Agagites are people, and the Amalekites and, the and King Agag have become symbolic of people who are anti-Semitic. And it struck me as I was thinking about that, and just hearing what Haman says, where it says that he found out what Mordecai's nationality was and decided, I'm going to take them all out. There is more going on here than just trying to eliminate a group of people. It seems to me that this is another attempt by the evil one to wipe out God's witness on the earth. And the evil one is continually doing that over and over and over again. His intent is to wipe out the presence of God's witness on the earth. And we see it through the history of God's people. And here is another moment. And one of the things that we don't always realize when God is speaking to us about something he wants us to do that's beyond us, I suspect that most of the time it has something to do with the witness of God on the earth. Being a presence of God in the midst of the brokenness and the pain and the struggle and the evil of this world. Because ultimately, as Paul says, we're not wrestling amongst flesh and blood, it's about principalities and powers. When God puts his hand on us and says, I've got something I want you to do. It will be about bearing witness to who God is in one way or another. Being God's people in a world that needs to know who God is. He's calling us to that. So how does Esther respond? Well, after a little bit of negotiation between she and Mordecai... Esther says, all right, first thing we need to do is fast. We need to fast. When she says we're going to fast, what she really means is we're going to pray. Esther's an interesting book. Unique. Never mentions God. And, in the, and, and never actually uses the word prayer. Now, in the, as I understand it, in the Greek translation, in the Septuagint, the, the translators stuck in God's name a few times, and put the word prayer in a few times because they felt uncomfortable having a book in the in the canon that didn't mention God or prayer. But the underlying idea of this is very clear as to what's going on and who's a part of it, who's in the middle of this process. And so she says, "We're going to pray because the fast is to pray." You see this in Ezra chapter eight when he's calling the people together and he says, "We're going to I'm going to call a fast. Why? So we can pray." 1 Samuel 7, they get the people gathered together, and Samuel says, we're going to fast so that we can pray, confess our sins to God. And in the Jewish mind, to fast is to pray, because what's the point? You're, you're, you're not spending time eating food, so you can spend that time praying. That's still the case today. When people have a, a, a religious fast... When we say we're going to fast, it's about spending more time with God. It's one of the things that we talk about were the reasons that in my mind for these prayer events and why we we get set aside times of an hour. I know a lot of people say an hour. I could never pray for an hour. Most people who get done with the hour say it went way too fast. I, need to, I needed more time. There is something about setting aside that kind of a block of time to, to commune with God, to hear, to speak, to experience God that we, we just can't quite experience when we spend five minutes here and three minutes there and ten minutes there. There's something in that extended time where our minds are more prepared. We are ready to hear God and to interact with God in a way that we simply are not ready to do when we just get little snippets of time here and there. It's one of the reasons why we've set aside those blocks of time to give us the opportunity to slow down, to give us the opportunity to step back and to spend a length of time with God. But you'll notice that when Esther says we're going to pray, she doesn't say to Mordecai, look, I know I'm going to go talk to the king. First, I'm going to pray, and then I'll let you know what happens. She says, if I'm going to the king, everybody's going to pray. We are not just calling a one-person fast. This is a corporate fast. This is a corporate time to pray. Because she realizes there is something significant about a large group of people praying. Just like fasting, corporate prayer is not magic. But there is something in us that takes place when we know we are praying with other people about the same thing. There is a unity that takes place in that. There is a strength in that takes place in that. Often, our most courageous moments come out of, of conversations and prayers that we have, not just by ourselves, but for other people with other people. And one of the things I love about the prayer vigil is when I'm standing outside waiting for the person to finish, when they walk out and I go in, when I'm done, I go out and somebody else comes in. There is a sense of passing the baton to each other. And there is a sense of getting into that room and knowing that my prayers are not just my prayers. They're being mingled with everybody else's prayers. That space takes on a holiness to it as we come together to pray. So Esther says we need to pray. But she also says something's got to be done. Somebody has to do something. And sometimes, there are times, and I, wouldn't, I won't ask us to raise hands if you've done this, but there are times, I suspect all of us have wrestled at times, with prayer being, maybe the best word is a cop-out. Where God is calling us to some kind of of activity, some kind of action, and our response is, well, I'll pray and let somebody else act. And we say our little prayer and then we move on. Someone was saying to me recently that they had had a conversation with a missionary a number of years ago who said that there was a group of people that would come to the city where they were working and and they would do, they would walk around the city praying, and they said it was awesome. We were glad to have them there. We were glad to have them coming to pray. And they came for a couple days, walked around and prayed, saw a few sights, and then went back home. And they said, as great as that was, and as wonderful as that was, what would have been even better is if a few of them said would have said, We'll stay. Because the missionaries aren't just there to pray in and out, they're there twenty-four seven. And sometimes our prayers can be a bit of a cop-out instead of the means that gives us the courage to take action that we need to take. And Esther has to take action. I don't know if this is true or not, but I have in my mind a picture of the palace with with large columns, pillars. And as Esther is making her way down the hallway toward the throne room, I suspect that she takes... It's a, it's probably the the longest walk that she's ever done. The slowest walk. The pl- most plodding walk. Her legs shaking. Her heart beating. And she stands there behind that pillar knowing that the next step is going to put her in the line of sight of the king. And standing there, she's thinking to herself, what I really want to do is Run. Because she doesn't know if that next step is going to be her last step. Because if she makes that step and the king sees her and he does not hold out his gold scepter, she's dead. She's done. And you know, Esther acts not from a position of power, but from from a position of vulnerability. She doesn't run to the king and say, now look king, you need to do what I tell you to do. I've got power over you, and you you need to do what I'm asking of you. Everything about this interaction puts Esther in a place of vulnerability. And I suspect that when God is calling us to something beyond ourselves, it's going to involve some level of vulnerability. Otherwise, it's not even that big of a deal. You just do it. The fact that it places us in a a position of vulnerability and that we're called to act out of a position of vulnerability is what makes it so hard. But that tends to be the way God calls his people to work. Out of a position of willingness to risk. Willingness to sacrifice. Willingness to open ourselves up. Now, the thing that I think a lot of people wrestle with when it comes to these hard things is that I think people tend to fall into the category of either being a Psalm 127 person or a John 9 person. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, what we're doing is is in vain. And the essence that you could interpret from that psalm is, it's all about God. We don't even need to be here. We just pray, leave it to God, walk away. It's all about God. There's nothing we can do. It's just God and nothing else. And then you get to John 9 and Jesus says, look, there's work to do and there's an immediacy to that work and we can do it now. And the, the, the temptation to interpret that is there's too much to do and the time is short. We have no time to pray. And we tend to fall into people who are activists and run without really seeking God and people who seek God and allow that to be the end and never involve themselves in the activity. And the reality is God's calling us to embrace the tension of both of these things. And in fact, I think there's a cyclical nature to prayer and action. Because if we are truly, if we truly open ourselves up to God and ask him, God, what do you want to do? What do you want me to do? What are you asking of me? Where are you leading me? If we are truly, honestly praying that to God, it's going to lead to some kind of action, and probably in a spirit of vulnerability. And if we come face to face with some kind of need, and we realize something needs to be done, and it's a hard thing to do, if we're really in tune with God, the first thing that's going to happen is it's going to drive us to our knees. Because we realize we could never do this in our own strength and power. And the more open we are and vulnerable we are in our prayers before God, the more vulnerable God's more things God's going to call us to do. And the more things that we do, the more we pray because we know how much we need it. It's it's like that the, the phrase that the statement that's that's attributed to Saint Augustine and Saint Ignatius of Loyola, who said Pray as if it all depends on God, and work as if it all depends on you. William Carey, the great missionary, kind of turned that around a little bit and said, Expect great things from God, attempt great things. For God. It's both the end. It's both the end. It's in the middle of that, the embracing of that tension that we start realizing how the level of vulnerability that God is asking of us, and vulnerability makes us hesitate. Because vulnerability has a tendency to expose our fears. That's why we feel vulnerable. And we become fearful about failing. We become fearful about being embarrassed. It's our our fear of rejection. It's our fear of making a mistake. We have all these fears that we live with. And we hesitate I can't tell you how many times I've thought thoughts gone through my mind, and I know it's true of other people because we talk about it. When someone comes and said, hey, would would you gather and pray for my healing? Every time we're praying these prayers of healing, there's something in us that says, I need to I need to be careful how I pray, because what if God doesn't do what I'm asking him to do? Are we embarrassed for God or embarrassed for us? We might look foolish. What God's calling us to is when you pray like that, you pray all in. And when you act for him, you act all in. That's the vulnerability that makes us hesitate. And and we hesitate, Esther hesitates. There is this dialogue, and I don't even know if we've got the whole dialogue that took place between Esther and Mordecai. Probably not. But even the dialogue we get, she's saying there's got to be another way. You can almost hear her saying, you know what, how bad can it possibly be? And Mordecai says to her, look, don't think that just because you're a queen in the palace, that when the day comes and this edict is, is carried out, that you're going to be spared. You won't be. And if you refuse to do what God's asking you to do in this moment, God will find somebody else to spare his witness. But you and your family are going to perish. And then he says to her, You know, Esther, think about it. Think about the circumstances that have brought you to this place. Don't you think it's possible that maybe everything that's brought you to where you are it's because of this moment. When I contemplate that, I realize that I think the author is telling us that, that Esther Esther what gets Esther moving about this is quite frankly an appeal to her self interest. It's when Mordecai says, Look, you're gonna die just like everybody else, that she says, Huh, maybe I ought to do something. And here's the honest truth. Vulnerability often has to start with an appeal to self-interest. We'd like to think that it doesn't need to do that. We'd like to think that we're so spiritual that God would ask us to do something and we'll be vulnerable about anything, even if it doesn't mean anything to us. I think that's where God wants to take us. I think that's where God is hoping we will eventually be. But let's be honest, we all wrestle with getting to that point. And what I love about this story, what I love about God's history with His people, is that God doesn't say to them, you know, I'm so frustrated with you. Everything still has to be, everything's about self-interest. God looks at us and says, that's where you are, that's where we'll start. Because God always starts where we are. He wants to move us beyond where we are, but He starts with us where we are. That's true when we're coming to Him. It's true on our journey with Him. Because all of us in our human sinfulness wrestle with self-interest. And so God finds ways to get us involved and to move us forward, often by starting where we are. And then as we begin moving and we begin seeing that, that God is doing more things than we could have dreamed or imagined some of that self-interest begins to fall away. Our hearts begin to change. So Esther is standing behind the pillar. And as chapter 5 begins, she takes the step and looks down at the king. And the king extends his scepter to her. And through a series of the next day's events, Everything that Haman planned gets turned on its head. And when you come to chapter 9, the Jews are rescued. Pondering that story, it made me think of another story that took place hundreds of years later. And this is a story of a man kneeling in a garden outside of Jerusalem. Going through the same kind of prayer that I suspect Esther did knowing that there was a call to action that was going to be pure vulnerability and sacrifice. And after three hours of praying, he gets up. And Esther, who walks into the presence of the king and is rewarded and rescued, Jesus gets up and walks to where he's going and they slap shackles on him. Within a few hours... He's breathing his last breath hanging from a cross. And what struck me is that it's only because Jesus isn't rescued like Esther is. That there is meaning and purpose to whatever God is calling us to. That we can trust him. Because He's the kind of God who gives Himself for us. God never asks us to do anything that He hasn't already done in far greater ways. It's because Jesus is not rescued. It's because Jesus goes to the cross, takes that step, and ends up giving up His life. That when you and I trust God, and in obedience to the call that He places on us and are vulnerable in prayer and action and embracing that tension, there is meaning and purpose to it. Because we know who God is. A little while ago, Nancy Murphy dropped off this rug at the church. It's a, it's a prayer rug you may not be familiar with prayer rugs but it's it's not all that different than maybe that favorite chair that you sit in every morning to read the scriptures and pray or that place outside that you love to go to that you just seem to be more connected to god in that place and a rug is just something that helps us remember what we're doing what it's about she, she brought by this, this prayer rug, and uh, Nancy's the director of Royal Family Kids Camp, has been the last few years. What's unique about this prayer rug is that it's made out of old RFKC t-shirts. All different colors. You get, when you get a close look at it, you can see the, the makeup of the fabric. And it struck me as I was thinking about this. RFKC is one of those things where vulnerability is just woven through the whole process. Anybody who's been a part of Royal Family Kids Camp, this camp where we get together abused and neglected children from this county and surrounding counties, and for a week, we help them know who God is. And we try to help them understand that they're not who everybody's been telling them they are, that they're beloved children of God. And everybody who's anybody who's been a part of that camp will tell you one of the most significant parts of it is all the people who are sacrificing their time and energy to pray, to pray and pray and pray. And anybody who's been a part of the camp will also tell you that if you go if you go there and you work, you sacrifice, and you're vulnerable. You give up your time, your energy. You give up all of yourself for these children. But out of that time comes things that are more beautiful than I think any of us probably could ever know, dream, or imagine. And here's the thing that struck me about this rug. What's easy to see are all of the wept colors going horizontally. What's not so easy to see are the warp threads going vertically. If you get close enough, you can see them, but from a distance, they're harder to see. And it struck me that that's sort of like prayer and action. These vertical threads are like the prayers that go on behind the scenes that most of us never know are happening. But people are sacrificing, putting ourselves in vulnerable positions with God to pray. What we see is this. But if you don't have both, you haven't got anything. It's the intersection of prayer and action that puts us in the place where we can be agents of God's work to bring about transformation and beauty in His world that desperately needs it. So what might God be asking of you? Whatever he's asking, are we willing? Father, we thank you for your grace that involves us in your wondrous work in this world. Give us the ability to embrace this tension with all that we are, And to trust you for all that you're calling us to do and to be. Through the grace of Christ Jesus. Amen.